Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larison, as we navigate the maze of bad policy, hypocrisy, and audacity in the imperial city. We are going to be mixing it up and talking to another pair of co-hosts fighting the good fight, Kyle Anzalone and Connor Friedman today, about their amazing podcast, Conflicts of Interest. But first, we take things over to Yemen. As of this recording today, the New York Times was reporting that the Houthi rebels in Yemen had launched two missiles targeting al-Dafra Air Base in the capital of Abu Dhabi. This was on Monday, which hosts the U.S. Force's 380th Air Expeditionary Wing and has about 2,000 U.S. military and civilian personnel stationed there. The U.S. deployed Patriot missile defenses at the base and intercepted them. There were no casualties reported. This was all confirmed by Central Command um, and followed a major attack on a detention center in Yemen by Saudi Arabia on Friday, which had resulted in over 80 deaths and 200 wounded, including children. The center, the detention center that is, is used for holding migrants, mostly from Africa. That attack was in retaliation for an earlier Houthi drone strike in Abu Dhabi, which killed a dozen people. Dan, this is the worst escalation in violence we've seen in a long time. Uh, what makes it worse is that the Saudi bombs that are killing civilians in Yemen were likely American-made. Many of us have been trying to end U.S. assistance to Saudi Arabia and UAE for years, and Biden was supposed to be on our side, promising to end offensive assistance to the kingdom and to lead negotiations towards a settlement between the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthi-led coalition and other parties inside Yemen. But instead, the violence is spiking and the humanitarian crisis continues without end. You, um, you've written about this consistently uh, over the years. Are, are we turning a dangerous corner here? Yeah, well, I'm afraid that it, it could be uh, a case where the, the war is going to escalate again. Uh, it had died down a little bit in terms of the, the frequency of the bombings. Uh, it had uh, calmed down a bit, uh, but you had... Uh, Houthi offensive around Marib, and then you've had them suffering setbacks uh, in another part of the country, and the the uh, strikes on Abu Dhabi were apparently the Houthis' way of retaliating directly against the UAE for the actions of the militia proxies that the UAE arms and supports. And so uh, we, we do see the, the war uh, kind of widening or expanding to include more targets in the countries that are intervening in Yemen. Uh, and this also brings U.S. troops more directly into harm's way, potentially, uh, because there, there is some thought that the, the latest attack uh, on the UAE was possibly aimed at the base and aimed at U.S. forces, uh, you know, possibly in recognition of the fact that we continue to support the war uh, in Yemen. So the, the, the potential for things to, to get even worse uh, is, is certainly apparent. Uh, and, and we see the, the Saudi coalition uh, continuing to turn the screws on the civilian population, uh, both through bombings and also through the use of their blockade. Uh, one of the other things that they did uh, in response to the attack on Abu Dhabi uh, was to destroy communications equipment in Hodeidah that connected Yemen to the internet. And so for many days, uh, Yemen was without any internet connection uh, to the outside world at all. And that affected the entire country. It was, it was uh, a blackout of the internet across the whole country. Uh, and coalition bombings have continued uh, intensely uh, in the days since then. So it's uh, it's clearly being ratcheted up. It's clearly getting worse. 
uh, and and I'm afraid that the Biden administration is is basically MIA uh, in that they they continue to provide weapons to both governments. They they don't seem to apply any pressure to those parties to the conflict, and when they commit a massive atrocity like the one at the detention center, uh, the most that the State Department can muster is an expression of concern. They they, they never call out the coalition governments by name as perpetrators of war crimes. They never condemn those attacks, but they always condemn the Houthi strikes uh, as a way of, I guess, signaling to the Saudis and Emiratis that we're we're with you, we're on your side. And that's been the flaw in this policy from the beginning, the, the, the enabling and indulging of these client states to do whatever they like in Yemen, knowing that they will never face any punishment. And until that changes, until they think that they're actually going to jeopardize their relationship with the U.S. over this, nothing is going to improve. And unfortunately, the, the Houthis will do what they're going to do. They don't, they're not concerned about the effect on the civilian population, but that's something that we ought to be taking into account because we know that the coalition takes out their vengeance on the civilian population in one way or another. And it's, it's the civilians who are suffering uh, uh, inordinately and, and, and most of all uh, as a result of these, uh, these back and forth attacks. So what, what the Biden administration really needs to do is to, to rededicate itself to finding some sort of diplomatic compromise that gets us a ceasefire and gets the blockade lifted. Because without that, uh, we're, we're just going to keep seeing this go on uh, basically indefinitely. Yeah. And let's talk about Biden a little bit. I mean, a year ago, he gave his first foreign policy speech and he spoke about his intent to help get us out of the war in Yemen. And he was going to start by putting a, a, a ban on selling offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, which made some of us cheer a little in our community of people who wanted to see an end to this war. Um, but there was some skepticism. Like, what does that mean, offensive weapons as opposed to defensive weapons? And the way that he couched it was that the United States would con would continue to ensure that Saudi Arabia would be able to defend itself from outside attacks. I believe at the time he was referring to the Houthis, but also a signal to Iran, which the administration likes to say is fully backing the Houthis in their campaign against uh, the coalition. So what happens a year later is that we're all we're talking about these weapons. We're talking about the Biden administration has a, a new package that they want to, to sell of weapons that they want to sell to Saudi Arabia. This was a, a deal that had been had been had begun in the Trump administration, but he is he and his administration is still willing to sell those weapons to Saudi Arabia, sell more weapons to to UAE, which is is part of the coalition. It's sort of like in the war than out of the war, but they seem to be in the war again. And so all this talk about you know bringing the parties to the table, negotiations, ceasefires has really just turned into whether or not we're going to sell weapons or continue to sell weapons to to Saudi Arabia and we have we we have found ourselves in a place where the violence seems to be getting worse and there's no end in sight to the fighting there's no end in sight to the blockade that Saudi Arabia has imposed on Yemen which is causing much of the humanitarian crisis there and there seems to be no repercussions 
when Saudi Arabia and the UAE are involved in civilian deaths in, in Yemen. So I'm, I'm very disappointed. I know a lot of people are. Uh, my colleagues, Anel Sheline and Trita Parsi, wrote a piece for the New Republic recently that suggested that perhaps the Biden administration was actually selling these weapons, defensive weapons, to Saudi Arabia and giving them the edge territorially in this war because the Biden administration felt that that would bring all the parties to the table faster. And obviously, that's not going to happen. That's a huge miscalculation. Um, but I'm also disappointed in Congress. And I, I'd like to know what you think about this, Dan. In 2017, Congress passed a resolution invoking the 1973 war powers to force the president to take uh, U.S. troops um, out of uh, the situation in Yemen, at least stop the assistance to Saudi Arabia. And they passed this resolution. Unfortunately, Trump had vetoed it at the um, behest of the military. But there doesn't seem to be a similar effort, at least not one that's as strong in Congress today, to really push the ball on this. Well, and I, I agree that the Congress does seem to be letting this slide uh, and, and it's unfortunate because I, I fear that some of the opposition that we saw to the war during the Trump years was simply a convenient way for people to to demonstrate that they were anti-Trump uh, or that they were Democratic partisans opposed to Trump and that that was the, the vehicle for that. And that now that they have a Democratic president, uh, there's no longer the same motivation to uh, make a big deal out of it. Uh, now, I know there are some uh, very principled members of Congress, I mean, Rokana, for instance, who have been consistent on this across the board and, and continue to speak out about it. But I, I am worried that there, there may not be the numbers that there were uh, to pass another war powers resolution because there's there's this conceit that, oh, now the president is on our side. He, he wants to bring the war to an end. He said so. And so we're, we're going to just sort of let it fester. And I think what we're seeing with these attacks on the UAE is you can't just let it fester and go on, uh, waiting for some diplomatic breakthrough uh, that our policies are clearly not helping to bring about. Uh, because the longer that it goes on, the more danger uh, everyone in the region is. Uh, and that includes U.S. troops. Right? Because we can imagine the scenario where if one of these Houthi missiles or uh, drone strikes gets through and injures or kills American troops, there's going to be a tremendous uh, surge in demand uh, for Biden to intervene uh, as part of or in, in support of the Saudi coalition at that point. And that, of course, that would simply exacerbate all of the problems that we've already seen. Uh, and so before we get to that point, uh, which I mean, we don't know when that might happen, but it, it could happen at any time, to, to, to head that off, uh, there needs to be a, a complete change in orientation. And instead of coddling and indulging the clients as we've been doing for now almost seven years uh, in this conflict, uh, there have to be some limits set and there have to be consequences when they use US-made weapons uh, to commit atrocities. And it, is, it has been confirmed in the case of the detention facility that the weapon used to destroy that or to, to hit that building uh, was made by Raytheon. It was sold to the, the Saudis by the US. And so, we, we have clear proof that we are fueling some of the worst crimes in this war and our clients are responsible for it. And so they, you know, they have to be reined in. And if Biden won't do that, then Congress has to 
push him to do that. And and then so we and so to that end, we have to insist as activists and as analysts and and citizens, we have to insist that Congress does its job and rein in uh, this this disastrous policy. Yeah, and I can I can hear Americans just sitting, you know, at their kitchen tables wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? And this is definitely not on the list of the top five things that Americans need to be worried about right now is this war in Yemen. And I'd like to turn that around a little bit. Um, Yeah, this isn't an interest of the United States to even be involved in the first place. So if you care about American interests, if you care about inflation, if you care about your safety on the streets, if you care about the pandemic, if you care about climate change and education of your children, then don't let this be an, a distraction. Tell your congressman to get the hell out of this war and to push this because the only ones who are benefiting from this war that I can see personally are the Americans, that is, are the top five defense contractors who are supplying the, the, the planes, they're supplying the bombs and the drones and all the other weaponry that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been using all these years to kill. And so, yeah, they're doing just great. And they're the ones who are pressuring the White House, just like they pressured the White House during the Trump administration to get these sales through. And so I look at who else is benefiting. You know, the, the Saudi Arabia and UAE are benefiting to the extent that they have a regional interest in this. I don't agree with it, but they have a regional interest. And then you have all of the local fighting that's going on and all the competing interests that are happening there on the ground. One could say, what about Iran? Why are they missing? You know, I've never been convinced that Iran has a huge interest in what's happening in the, on the ground there. Have they been assisting the Houthis? Yes. To what extent? I don't believe is a big one. I don't believe this is the proxy war that Mike Pompeo and others have tried to convince us when they when when they were arguing why we needed to be there because it was Iran. We needed we had to keep Iran from extend extending their influence into this particular theater. I don't believe that. What I believe is that we have stuck our noses again in someone else's backyard, someone else's yard, and we don't know exactly how to extricate for uh, extricate from it. But Congress showed us the way in 2019. Stop the assistance. And then I say actively work to get that blockade lifted because I don't like to see people starving. I don't like to see African migrants who have their lives are so bleak and in danger that they're literally going to Yemen to get away from their situations in Africa. They're put in detention centers and then they're getting bombed with US made bombs um, because now they're, they are in the way. And so I want to, I want to see an end to all of that. Absolutely. And and I should add the, the other thing that we have to be on guard against is the the possibility that the U.S. will now redesignate the Houthis as a terrorist organization mm-hmm. uh, at the request of the UAE, and and this would be a, a serious uh, and indeed catastrophic mistake if Biden were to do that. Biden has said that he's considering doing it. Uh, I, I hope that 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 consideration is brief and the answer comes back as no, 
because the Biden administration has already lifted this designation once before after the Trump people put it on. And they did that not because they have any love for the Houthis, of course, but because they understand the humanitarian consequences of sanctioning a poor and starving country uh, by, by designating the de facto government of that country, you're going to cut them off from all economic activity. And you're going to do to Yemen what we've already done to Afghanistan. And so that is the, the, the reality of what will happen if the designation goes through. And that's why it absolutely must not be allowed to go through. The Biden administration has to be told in no uncertain terms that if they do that, they are the authors of a massive famine. And that uh, should be and, and, and has to be unacceptable uh, as, as a, a policy of the United States government. to welcome Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman to Crashing the War Party today. Kyle and Connor, along with Will Porter, are co-hosts of Conflicts of Interest, which covers foreign policy and national security headlines with a critical and skeptical eye, much like we do here on the show. They aim to, and I'm quoting them, to cut through the dribble put out by mainstream news outlets to focus on the most important stories with detailed analysis. When they aren't on air three days a week, Kyle Anzalone is news editor of the Libertarian Institute and opinion editor at antiwar.com. Connor is a writer at the Libertarian Institute, primarily covering foreign policy. So welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to be on. Great to be here and great to meet you both. Yeah. Uh, so um, lots going on to talk about in the world. But first, tell us a little bit about conflicts of interest, like why and, and when did you launch it? And who do you sense is your primary audience? Yeah, so I, I started the show with Will Porter in August of 2020. And I had been doing a, only an audio podcast before that called Foreign Policy Focus. And then me and Will start doing that together so frequently that I just brought him on as a co-host and we start doing video. And then um, uh, a, a few months ago, Will is took like a temporary hiatus and so uh brought connor on and he's gonna stay even once will comes back and yeah we're, we're trying to do like the video platform with something different with conflicts of interest that way we have the actual articles up there that we're talking about um sometimes especially uh like some of the episodes i did with danny Shershin, we have a lot of maps in there and things like that uh, you know really when you're breaking down like mali and ethiopia some people find that to be really helpful so we try like incorporate some of that video element to like enhance the show. But anybody who just listens to audio, which is most of the audience, you know, I think we do a pretty good job of explaining what we're talking about anyways. So yeah, that that's kind of the history of the show. I guess we've been doing it for about a year and a half now. And uh, I mean, so I'm always surprised at the audience, I guess. My uh, impression is always that they're going to be libertarians because, of course, it's hosted at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, but I'll say something on the show like, oh, I'm sure everybody in, uh, in the audience opposes uh, the vaccine mandates. And I'll let somebody say, oh, no, I, you know, am uh, I have support vaccine mandates or, you know, big uh, concern about global global warming, things like that. So I think the audience is far more diverse than I think it is politically. And it's just people who are primarily interested in uh, the, the big things that the U.S. government does wrong. Uh, you know, it's uh, policing and mostly foreign policy. 
What about you, Connor? What brings you to the, to the show? Well, I, I've been following, uh, Kyle for a very long time and, uh, uh, you know, reading, uh, Dan Larison at the American conservative and your work as well. And reading antiwar.com for years. And I, I had written for the Institute a bit in 2017 and then kind of got caught up in some other things, but returned in the end of 2020, uh, and really, uh, basically I was committed to it from that point on. And, uh, after a few months of, of writing, Kyle had, um, uh, rerun one of my articles at antiwar.com. And then I went on conflicts of interest to talk about it. And we had very good chemistry early, you know, immediately. And then, uh, I came back and we covered the end of the Trump administration, uh, for the last like three weeks of his term. And after that, I just kept coming on the show and writing more and more articles for the Institute. And, uh, Pretty soon, I was doing the show. Uh, I think more than uh, more than anybody, and then I became the co-host. So uh, it's it's been uh, fantastic, but it's mostly because um, working with Kyle and uh, you know just staying up on top of the news and everything. And once I, I started reading antiwar.com every day, and um, you know some of these other sites that we all frequent, Dan's uh, Substack and and Responsible Statecraft, for instance. Um, I mean, I'm just uh, to borrow a Scott Horton phrase, I'm just kind of stuck like this. So it's perfect for me. So, I mean, you guys are, are, are young and I'm curious, uh, what brought you, uh, to foreign policy? Why, why do you feel compelled to talk about this issue in the way that you do every day? Because a lot of people, I mean, if we took a, a massive poll of the United States population, most people are not interested in foreign policy. And right now, uh, their focus is on domestic issues, domestic political battles. Um, but what what has kept even younger generation, uh, at least in, in in the sliver, the orbit that we operate, you know, coming back and 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 and, and making this a priority of interest? I, I'm guessing for both me and Connor, Ron Paul and Scott Horton are probably the two biggest names and, and figures that drove us. Uh, maybe Connor has some other people, but those are definitely the top kind of two things I would cite. Also, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, with 9-11 being like the, the biggest thing that happened in my life. And of course, I um, like I, when I was in high school, you know, the recruiters were there every day. I have a lot of friends, uh, family members even that have uh, joined the army. Some have deployed to like Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, you know, I, I kind of saw all that growing up. And then once, uh, particularly like 2009, I had graduated high school. And I started listening to Ron Paul and what he was saying on foreign policy and just having kind of known what everybody was saying before I realized he was right. And then, yeah, it just, it seemed like such a big issue, something so important to talk about. And so like I, I slowly started doing a little bit of writing, then started to show and then end up working, you know, with Scott at the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com is just I guess, you know, kind of like what Connor says, you get stuck this way almost once you like when, whenever, you know, like you, you're listening to Scott's show, the Sky Horton show. And he's saying that, hey, the Libya war is going to be an absolute disaster. It's going to create a failed state. They have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Uh, they're going to create uh, ethnic cleansing against the you know minority populations. They're not going to be able to reconstitute. And then that exactly happens. Like, what else are you supposed to do other than try to amplify that message? Because 
because, you know, the U.S. government destroyed so many lives in Libya for absolutely no reason. And, you know, that's a, a big part of it was the wars in Libya, Yemen, I think for me, like seeing beforehand how how they were predicted to go exactly the way they went. And nobody's been held accountable for anything. Nobody's even upset at the people who got it wrong. For, for me, it was, uh, I mean, I was already, uh, like Kyle says, uh, very into Ron Paul and, you know, being acquainted with like Rothbardianism and everything. So I had already, I was on board with the idea that war is mass murder and conscription is slavery and, and uh, it's more of a libertarian thing, but taxation is theft and stuff like that. So I was already opposed to all this, but then become, listening to Scott's show and Dan McAdams and Ron Paul uh, and reading antiwar.com uh especially starting uh, probably five years ago or so, like every day. Um, I just, I mean, it's, especially the Yemen war uh, and the fact, I mean, it blew my mind to understand that we had done a coup in Ukraine and, and back Nazis and this sort of thing. Uh, and that, you know, just seeing what had happened in Syria, just the high death tolls in Iraq and Syria and Libya and uh, Afghanistan and, and knowing about what our allies and partners in Afghanistan were like. Um, it, it's, you know, you feel like you're compelled to do something. And once you start reading about it, you, you, you're also compelled to stay on top of it and, you know, keep yourself informed. Uh, and then really what motivated me to get to start writing consistently was the buildup against China in 2020 during the, the whole COVID crisis. I couldn't believe the, how often they were, you know, flying warplanes and moving aircraft carrier strike groups into the South China Sea and elsewhere, uh, and just the amount of money that was being spent and all the risks that were being taken sailing warships to Taiwan Strait. And I thought, uh, especially after reading Dave DeCamp, for instance, and Anti-Watercom, I'm like, well, I got to start, you know, doing this myself. Um, and, uh, you know, and writing about this and talking about it. And then uh, seeing Biden escalate most of the worst of Trump's policies was, it just made me double down. Um, and especially on that issue is another one, because again, I think the American people, the worst, the saddest thing is like, they, they seem to not, I mean, it's, I like the fact that we're becoming more anti-war as a society. Uh, I hope um, that sort of seems to be the general impression, but at the same time, there is a disconnect where it's kind of like they look at Afghanistan, like, ah, oh, it's a quagmire. What a mistake, you know, all this money, but it's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dead and, you know, who knows how many millions have been displaced between Iraq and Afghanistan alone. Uh, but the wars with Russia and China, the buildups against them, you know, risk killing all of us. Uh, so it, it has put me into a very sort of alarmed state and motivated me to, uh, you know, oppose it publicly and help other people realize that it's it's wrong and it's based on lies and it has to stop because, you know, it's, we're, in the, it, we're in the crosshairs of all of that destruction now. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, guys. We appreciate you having you on. Uh, turning to the, the current crisis over Ukraine, uh, I know, uh, Kyle, you've talked before about concessions that Biden could make to help defuse the crisis there. Uh, what concessions would be most effective for de-escalation, in your opinion? And do you think the Biden administration will offer any of them? 
Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, it, it's who from whose perspective a concession, because in reality, I, I think there's a very low chance that Ukraine would join NATO. You know, all the NATO member states would have to approve of it. And Germany and France seem very unlikely to do so. Also, the corruption internal problems in Ukraine, uh, you know, put a lot of barriers to that. However, uh, even though Ukraine won't join NATO, Biden putting that in writing and making like a public statement, I, I think would be pretty powerful in diffusing the current crisis. And uh, it, it would definitely be viewed in, you know, the realm of American politics as a major concession. And so, I, I mean, I think that's something that could be done again. He really doesn't have to give anything up or change anything. Ukraine's not a NATO member and, and won't be for at least a very long time. And yet, actually saying that with the, you know, the current status of, you know, discord in American foreign policy is just so unacceptable that I'm not sure if he would go through and do something like that. And just, you know, one more point on that, Dan, I believe you wrote a blog post on the, or a post at your Substack on the fantastic piece by Peter Beinhardt on how, uh, you know, if we're looking at the cold warriors, the, the Kissingers, right. The, the lunatics who, who waged, you know, the, the Cold War policy um, and, and then compare, it's, you know, what they would say today about the, you know, current people pushing uh, war with Russia, they would view them as lunatics, right? Because, you know, they, they've pushed it be so far beyond what the Cold Warriors wanted and, you know, conceded that, yeah, Russia does have spheres of influence and that does include Ukraine, but, you know, that that's just not our current discord and who our current, you know, the the establishment blob, whoever the people who really get to go on the Sunday shows and tell the American people what the acceptable realm and debate on foreign policy is, you know, they're saying it has to be more aggressive. And Biden is essentially taking the most dovish position he can right now and right. by not putting on sanctions before Russia even invades Ukraine. So, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And, and it's reached such a point that Biden's position, which I mean, from our perspective is, is actually fairly, uh, stubborn and inflexible i think i mean that's the way i would characterize it uh, he gets attacked for being supposedly too accommodating to the russian position uh which is uh strange um thinking about the the, the hype uh, about the the you know the possible invasion uh, coming from russia uh especially one that's been amplified by the biden administration and boris johnson's government in the uk uh how irresponsible do you guys think they have been in feeding fears of an imminent invasion when it seems that a lot of our other European allies and even the Ukrainians are not as panicky about it as they have been. Yeah, uh, Dave DeCamp has uh, the the news editor at antiwar.com who writes up a bunch of stories there every day, highlights that the Ukrainians were a little bit upset with the Americans about starting to remove personnel and staff from the embassy in Ukraine because it, I think it created a little bit of a, a hysterical reaction in Ukraine. There's a lot of people trying to get out right now. I saw that like uh, airline tickets prices were you know going up, I guess, as a signal that that's happening. And in there, the Ukrainians say, well, you know, Russia started a military buildup on the border in April of uh, 2021. So, you know, we don't see the security situation being any more critical than than it was now. So uh, it's, you know, very interesting that, yeah. And then even if you go back to November, when the U.S. was first warning about the, uh, you know, crisis in the military buildup, the Ukrainians initially said, what are you talking about? And so, yeah, it's very interesting how it plays out, particularly with the U.S. and the U.K. being most aggressive and, you uh, 
you know, the, the Ukrainians ending up somewhere in the middle. I don't exactly understand everything that, you know, goes on uh, in all the statements that President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine made. Sometimes he seems very aggressive and sometimes he seems uh, far more cautious. Uh, but yeah, the French and the Germans in particular seem very unwilling to go along with this. And Germany even questioning how much they're committed to the Nord Stream 2 uh, sanctions uh, on, the, on that pipeline if Russia were to invade. So Connor might have a, a little bit more detail on that, though. Well, I was just, um, I mean, uh, I mean, it's been very um, interesting to see the divisions in NATO uh, and in the Europeans, because, uh, of course, the Germans aren't allowing um, their you know, weapons of German origin to be exported to Ukraine, uh, standing in the way of uh, Estonia exporting those um, uh, artillery pieces. Uh, the British, when they were flying their weapons recently, had to avert uh, or had to sort of bypass German airspace and fly uh, uh, further north. Um, it, you know, so, and also, I mean, the talks in the Normandy format or akin to the Normandy format have just restarted, uh, I believe today, uh, in Paris, uh, the French, the Germans are going to be speaking with, um, of course, uh, the Ukrainians and, um, uh, ex uh, excuse me, the Russians. And, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a very good sign. The British seem to be just you know, parroting the American line for the most part, uh, sending, uh, the, I, you know, they sent elite commandos and military trainers uh, to Ukraine recently. They keep sending the anti-tank uh, short-range missiles. Uh, the Americans are just dropped off two different shipments of, I think, well over 100. Uh, I mean, uh, it was, how, how many tons of weapons is it at this point? Is it like 100 or it's, it's over, it's like uh, 80 and it's got a, it's well over a hundred. I, I looked at it the, uh, last night. Um, but it, yeah. And, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, they refuse to make any concessions except for this. I mean, Ray McGovern has kept me quite optimistic reading him talking about, you know, if you read the Russian, uh, reports that come out where they say that they have promised not to place the offensive strike weapons, but, uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, and Blinken is saying things like that as well. Um, and that there's room to talk about restoring the INF treaty, and, uh, you know, on, um, you know, transparency on NATO exercises and things of this nature. Um, so that's all to the good. But of course, uh, you have Brett Stevens and Fiona Hill and all these hawks out here saying, and we're even hearing people in the so-called independent media say things like this, um, where they go, well, this is Biden's fault because of what happened in Afghanistan. It just shows how weak he is. And he provoked this crisis. Um, so it's like the luxury of American hawks to just push for escalation and more weapon sales and more sanctions and to destabilize uh, the situation further. Uh, whereas, you know, the Europeans would bear the brunt of all this uh, of if there is a war. So they're obviously uh, much more reluctant, although I can't really say that necessarily, of course, for the uh, for like Poland and the Baltic states. But I think uh, the French and the Germans have uh, more influence. And thankfully, I mean, maybe Kyle was talking about this last night on the show. Uh, maybe they can make a commitment to the Russians that Ukraine won't be joining NATO. They can finally, you know, thoroughly implement MIST two and get some get the autonomy for uh, the Donbass region for Lutonsk and Donetsk. Um, but I mean, the Americans are gonna. It's gonna be very a delicate situation, which is one of the reasons why I think um, they're not going to make public these security guarantees. But I, I don't. I mean, obviously, the Germans don't want. Uh, a war with Russia, uh, because again, and and I think Scott Ritter was making this point recently that if they uh, they can't survive without Russian gas, or actually he said the Russians can 
survive uh, and withstand the sanctions that will be Im, uh, imposed uh, much longer than Russia can, uh, excuse me, much longer than Germany can go on without Russian gas. Uh, so, and I, th- and I think they're very keenly aware of that. And so glad to see that there are some members of NATO and the Europeans who are working toward a uh, peaceful resolution here with uh, Macron and um, the new chancellor of Germany. And, you know, this program will be going up in a few days and developments are happening rather quickly on this front. So uh, I'm hoping to decide with uh, Ray McGovern and, and yourself on, on being more optimist, but we, we don't know. I did want to ask you guys before we wrap up, um, we're talking about divisions. There's plenty of divisions uh, within the both the Republican and Democratic Party in terms of how... Um, people are viewing this escalation or this feeling of escalation. And I, you know, you're libertarians. And so, you know, we've always, you know, you know libertarians have always been on the right side as far as I'm concerned on uh, interventionist policies. Uh, but there, there does seem to be uh, some conservative Republicans who are peeling off from the uh, Republican right, hawkish right, in this particular instance, and, and you hear more people like Tucker Carlson and uh, others who have voiced some really strong opinions about the Hawks in Washington and their saber rattling right now. Uh, and you see some on the left, too. You have a liberal interventionists that continue uh, to saber rattle uh, while more progressives have been calling for restraint. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on public opinion and where it is now, say, compared to where it was after 9-11 on the prospects of going to war? Do you feel like there's been an actual shift on, on both sides in, in this regard? Well, I, I guess the American people seem less into it. I just read a poll that said like one in six. I, I think Americans are only only one in six Americans are interested in sending troops into Ukraine. So, you know, there are more people that are interested in sanctions and economic war because they see that as being like a low cost option. But if Biden just explained the futility of, of the sanctions and how it's not going to achieve anything, you know, then, then maybe he could get that message across the American people that is really not uh, going to be productive to just sanction Russia over this. And if you don't want to send troops, then there's no confrontation to be had with Russia over Ukraine. That's just, you know, kind of this the situation that is. Uh, but, you, you know, you do have like Tucker Carlson, Tulsi Gabbard, who are Democrat and Republican, who are both against this. And, and that's great. But then, you know, you have some issues like China where they're both then turned back into hots. Uh, but, you know, it's mainly the center, right? It's uh, Rod Portman and Gene Shaheen working together on a bill. It's uh, Mitt Romney and Bob Menendez. It's, you know, Roger Wickers and all this, you know, kind of group of the, you know, the 90% of the people who are in the House and the Senate and who represent, I think, you know, most Democrats and Republicans and their lines of thinking that are the real problems and the real haunts. And that once you get out to a little bit like of the, you know, more independent thinkers of either party, they pretty quickly turn against the wars because it's just so obvious that this is wrong. And so I guess, you know, just driving more people into, uh, you, you know, being just a little bit more of independent thought than what Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton will tell you will get you a long way. Connor, I'll give you the last word. Well, I'll say I was reading that same poll, and uh, uh, one of my concerns about it was um, that 
if you look at it, it's it actually says that the no party other category are more in favor of putting boots on the ground by a couple of points or a point here. But that. nevertheless, it was notable. I thought they're more in favor of putting boots on the ground and uh, sending more and more military equipment and uh, weapons to Ukraine, uh, which I thought was uh, interesting because if you look at the, unfortunately, um, I think one of the I just saw a tweet the other day that kind of ca- encapsulates it. Uh, I don't I hadn't heard of this guy before. Representative Anthony Sabini, I think. And it said America, an America first policy means no involvement in Ukraine. Um, no U.S. involvement in Ukraine. And he posts a picture of himself and Donald Trump giving a thumbs up. And I'm like, oh, that was Trump's policy. No involvement in Ukraine. I'm, I must have missed that. <laughs> uh, so I think one of the biggest problems is, um, you know, uh, our, our colleague, uh, Patrick McFarland, shared a video uh, at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, he shared a video of uh, Tim Poole recently, who was talking uh, with uh, his co-host. And, and they go off on, basically, they sounded exactly like Brett Stevens or Fiona Hill or, or any one of these hawks who you know, does this thing where they say that, you know, this is Biden's fault. Look at what happened in Afghanistan. Now China's going to take Taiwan. And it's, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that one of the main things that uh, went wrong with the Trump administration is it's sort of, he was able to uh, market himself as being anti-establishment, anti-war, but he greatly escalated the new Cold Wars with Russia and China. And I don't think that's really been reckoned with uh, on on the right to the extent that it should be. Um, I mean, I wish there were more right-wingers like Daniel Larrison, uh, but uh, unfortunately, that doesn't always seem to be the case. There's still a lot of, you know, Bannon has a great deal of influence uh, and his show is, you know, they're very hyperbolic. I mean, they talk about, they call Xi Jinping Hitler and talk about him committing a Holocaust uh, against the Uyghurs, um, which of course, all the genocide rhetoric is highly questionable at best if you read uh, Gareth Porter and Max Blumenthal and, and Patrick McFarlane as well. Um, but uh, I think that there is a, there's still uh, a troubling amount of willingness to just accept that America is the good guy. And I think the unipolar propaganda, the unipolar moment propaganda from the 90s onward, um, I mean, it somewhat came to a screeching halt with the election of Trump and the sort of the rejection of Hillary Clinton, which appeared to be a good sign. But then he carried on like, you know, some of the worst policies of, of Bush and Obama uh, and sort of the way Biden has with Trump. And there doesn't seem to be much more um I mean, uh, well, anyway, I, I think that there should be more uh, consistency and that these people's own cons- uh, own constituents should hold their feet to the fire. Like uh, the American people should have supported Trump when he tried to leave Syria and not just given up when he gave up. Uh, so if we could see more of that, uh, that would be um, you know much more encouraging. But at the moment, I think there's still this idea that like you got to be tough and you got to impose sanctions, and they and they still kind of. I mean, I say in my article recently that you know after all these millions killed just in this century and and displaced and trillions and trillions of dollars spent and you know trillions more dollars that we still have to pay in interest for all these wars that all went wrong and were all disasters and depleted our our re- our resources and 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 squandered our you know human lives and, and, and wealth and treasure. And, and still the American people seem to move on to the next enemies, the next buildup and the next, uh, potential war. Um, so 
I think what we're doing is is helping to try and put a break on that and and reverse it. And I think um, I think we're making progress, but at the same time, I get a little bit worried when I see more and more people uh, just ready to just accept that you know, well, we got to do something, you know, uh, right. about Putin and Xi Jinping. But I think that um, overall, I I see more progress, certainly more so than the post nine eleven climate. Yeah. Well, I mean, we I I credit you guys for for doing your show and doing your part. Uh, to change minds and to shift the mindset, so to speak, away from the the endless wars and this sort of um, falling into the American exceptionalism line that seems to to, to suck public opinion into these wars uh, or into these you know possible interventions. Every time we see that reflected in the polls, there's there's tons of room there. For, for a public opinion to shift either way. So it's important to have shows like yours out there, people talking on both sides of the aisle. This isn't just a left and a right thing. And I think the more that people accept that and recognize that, and you know, for all of his faults, Trump was able to change the conversation in that way and allow people on the right to start criticizing the endless war posture so that's great um so yeah i'd love to have you guys back on the show again to see how all of this has unfolded and um you know to to pick your brains a little more on the 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 different flashpoints we didn't get to today but thank you so much thank you thank you again for tuning into today's episode If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. (laughs) 